Hey guys, hey ladies, hey friends, hey foes. We just wanted to take a second to remind you that while we're okay swearing when little ears are listening, you might not be, and that's okay. So here's your chance to pause us and wait for nap time, or pop in your earbuds. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Done Playing by the Rules. We have something special for you guys today. I'm Jenna. And I'm Janelle. And if you're watching on YouTube, you will see that we have a special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Elizabeth Therese I'm glad you said your last name because I think I would have butchered that. (laughs) Our guest today is an occupational therapist and Janelle and her connected through social media, correct? Mm -hmm. So we are both in a, um, I think we're both in a limited screen time group. Mm -hmm. And then you had written something regarding um, some of your background in occupational therapy for children. Jenna and I have been talking a lot about Jenna's son that has some um, ADHD. And we've had a million moms reach out to us and say, my child is exhibiting ADHD-like behaviors or autism spectrum behaviors. So say you have no history or knowledge of ADHD, you have a baby, they say take this baby home from the hospital, and at two or three years old, you start seeing behaviors that are concerning to you. There are places that you can ask for help, but we wanted this to kind of be an entry point to the parent that sees their two or three-year-old, which you can correct me if that's not the right age range that these behaviors start to exhibit, but the parent that has a two or three-year-old that's like, I am noticing a little something that's not quite what I expected or is a little different from their peers. When should I seek help? When should I be concerned? What is normal developmental stuff? And what is something to seek early intervention in because as we are learning early intervention is really important as far as a time to start getting intervention like you said early intervention is really important I really trust moms and their gut if I have a mom come to me and say something is different I don't understand what's going on I don't know what to do I will test and test and test until I can find a way to qualify them and get them help as long as that's within my power because usually they're right and there's also parents who are in denial for mm-hmm. sure. And they need, they need to be told, you know, or they need to just see their kid in social settings. Two or three would be an age Two especially is an age when kids start to socialize more and there becomes a little more of a gap with social emotional skills. But with autism, they're finding out you can, you can start telling from infancy and um, oh, wow. from really, really young age. Sensory processing disorder is another mm-hmm. area that kind of encompasses autism and ADHD, in my opinion, not everyone's. So sensory processing, that there can be signs from very, very early on. What would some of those signs generally be? Yeah. So um, I was just talking with someone about this the other day. Okay. Sensory processing disorder, it's just really huge. It's not a diagnosis that's given very often and it doesn't give anyone services. So first, let me say with diagnoses, a lot of times parents are really concerned about getting a diagnosis because of the stigma and the label 
and Mm -hmm. what can happen and how that child's going to be perceived. The way I see diagnoses and what I encourage parents to consider it's just the medical system is just like a game. Like you've got to say the right words to get the services that you need. So diagnoses are the key to services and it needs to be a very specific diagnosis to get the right services. So if a kid gets diagnosed with sensory processing disorder, they're not going to qualify, but they're going to need the same help that a kid with Mm -hmm. autism is getting. I encourage parents if they need the help to do what it takes to get the help, but it's totally their decision. And I understand that's a difficult area for sure. I think it's very difficult too in that um, the st- just like mental health, which we talk a ton about on this podcast, the more we can talk about it and the more we can de- destigmatize it because I feel like in the 90s, a lot of these diagnoses really had a bad label to them similar mm-hmm. to mental health and taking medication for mental health. And the more we can talk about it and make it open and open the doors for conversations and make other moms feel supported and follow their gut and do what is best for their child. We're going to open up doors, hopefully, that in when our kids are raising their kids, that it's not a big deal to say, oh, we got a little, a few things that need some tweaking here, or we have a major issue that needs some really consistent help here. But the more we can talk about it, the more digestible it's going to become to mainstream. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it it has changed a lot since we were kids. Mm -hmm. But I think now that we're the parents, I think we're hesitant for good reason, you know, to get those, Mm -hmm. those diagnoses. The school system is a whole other issue. Um, Schools can diagnose. Sometimes they do. And you, you really need a diagnosis to get services in schools. Not always, but parents just have to fight to get services in schools, at least in Texas. That's what I see. And I think in the school system, that's where you get more of the stigma. That's where it's going to be more, more difficult. What I hate to see is a child with, who's not processing sensory input well, get labeled as a behavioral kid because they might just be incredibly impulsive. Like Mm -hmm. they might not be able to stop their bodies from Mm -hmm. (laughs) the first thought that came into their mind, or they might be avoiding some input that's bothering them, or they might be seeking, you know, they might not be able to sit still. And that's like a neurological reason for why they can't sit still or why they're avoiding or why they're impulsive. And when it gets labeled as behavior, that assigns an intent Mm -hmm. to that child. And that's just not always the case. And so that can be really tricky to discern. So since I'm a sensory OT, I get the luxury of just assuming it's sensory and just working with the kids in that area. And usually we can make progress. And that is a really good way to put it is to call it, you get the luxury, which I think a lot of teachers don't get the luxury. Jenna and I have had kids in, we've never had them in public grade school, but we've had them in kindergarten and pre-kindergarten systems where those teachers don't always have the luxury of being able to assume the best. It's kind of, we have to keep up with the class and we have to keep things moving. So these people kind of get nudged aside because they don't get the luxury, like you said, of being able to focus on the sensory. Exactly. Yeah. And I get to work with kids one-on-one and that's just totally different. Oh, so magic. Yeah. In a classroom. And so. the kid you described is my son to it's a T. He struggles with impulse control, but not in a bad, like there's no negative motivation behind it. 
But if there's a button he's not allowed to push, you better believe he's going to push that button. If there's a friend he wants to hug, he just has to do it and get it out of his system. He has what people have labeled, people who don't know, as aggression, but it's not aggression. He just has such big, strong feelings. He does a lot of like tongue biting and fist clenching just because he's so excited. And it's when he's happy. Ironically, he really struggles to sit still. So we've decided to homeschool. Mm -hmm. But eventually, I see us probably going down the school route. But that's where I'm struggling because I feel like as a parent in our home, I can implement all the strategies. But then sending him out into the world is a little scarier. And so do you have any suggestions for that? Like my goal right now is basically to keep him home and teach him these strategies and then kind of let him go into the world. And I will say I've gotten a lot of criticism of, oh, well, if you just send him to school now, he'll just learn. You're keeping him home selfishly. You're babying him. He just needs to learn the hard way. Um, so yeah. I would love your input on that. I have heard all of those too. I'm just like cringing yes. thinking about I it. I said to someone once, they were like, he needs to learn the hard way. And I was like, okay, well, I'll drop him off at a scary playground and let somebody beat him up then. Like, is that how we learn? Like, I don't know what you want him to learn the hard way is that yeah. you can't physically attach yourself to other people <laughs> if they mm-hmm. don't want it. Yeah. Well, then if, you know, sitting still and regulating emotions and I mean, really just self-regulation and impulsivity, all those things are factors. He really is learning the hard way. I mean, like mm-hmm. yeah, he's really true. battling a lot um, mm-hmm. just, just to be a little person. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, yeah. that's how I see that kid that you're describing. Like, no, he's got a lot going on already. He is. That's he's already learning the hard way. He that's a really good way to think about, about it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is he, is he in kindergarten? So we gave him an extra year. And so he did kindergarten last year. So he'll be going into first grade. Okay, great. My son is just finished kindergarten. I had planned on sending him to public school before COVID. You know, my husband's a public school teacher. And and I just couldn't. I just like, Mm -hmm. I couldn't set foot in the building. There was just so much going on last fall. So um, I homeschooled him for like four months. I really can't. I really have to work. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I like what I do, but I loved that time. Like it was just a precious time. I had both my kids at home and I just got to do things like the way I wanted to do them. Mm -hmm. But I also was overwhelmed. Like I'm not a teacher. I don't know how to teach a kid how to read. I, there's a lot of, I don't understand math. (laughs) Like how you do that. So, um, I ended up putting them in a Montessori school. Um, they both could go in the same class. It was like ages three to six. So that was a part of my like factor, like, Oh, at least it's only the whole class times out. But I really enjoyed the Montessori school and we're going to keep them in next year. And I hope after that, I don't know, but they go at the child's pace. So the Montessori philosophy is development first. So Mm -hmm. they look at the child's developmental level and then they fold in the academics So they're waiting until that child's ready. Public school, at least here, it's a high bar. A lot of OTs who really understand development don't understand why the standards are the way they are. A child is not supposed to be able to draw a triangle until they're, I think it's five and a half. But we start kids writing letters at three. 
Think about mm-hmm. how many diagonal, like capital A, right? Like, yeah, there's no reason to put a pencil in a three-year-old's hand and expect them to form letters. Mm-hmm. They can do it. Like kids will rise to the occasion and like this percentage of kids can do it. And somehow those students have been placed with like the top achievers. I see it as a societal problem. I think teachers are doing a good job, but teachers are frustrated with the standards as well. And so I think schools can be a great place. I think supports can be put in place. I've seen success with that. It all depends on the teacher and the environment and the size of the class and lots of factors. The class size is so hard. Yeah. 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 I guess my... (laughs) My personal bend is like, well, I homeschooled and my kids aren't in public. And my son, mm-hmm. I've always thought like he could handle it. Like he's, he has a great attention span. He's, mm-hmm. he's a pretty like together kid neurologically. Yeah. I just caught myself like, why am I saying he could handle it? <laughs> like mm-hmm. why does my kindergartner have to go handle it? You know, mm-hmm. I don't think it's time for that yet. I think there will be a time that will come. And I think just naturally life is going to deal us enough stuff that our kids are going to build resiliency. Mm -hmm. But I want to be the one to teach them as much of those lessons as I can. I totally understand what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. I love that. So another question I have, yes, I totally love, love, love everything you said. So let's assume the majority of listeners are sending our kids into public schools And so like we were saying in the age of like three, and so Jenna and I have discussed what our kids, our oldest were like, which are similar ages, what they were like as three-year-olds and Jenna's son with ADHD and my son at three were completely different individuals. And so it lends me to believe that a ADHD child is markedly different at three than somebody and my kid has done speech he's done ot he's done pt for various reasons so we start recognizing these signs we can't hold them back we have a dual income household our kids need to go to school i checked out a book the other day and it was talking about i think and this is what you practice also of course i lost my page but the parent training and behavior management It talks a lot about how to bridge the gap between school and home so that you are all kind of working together. Do you have any suggestions or things that you see in terms of, say we have a dual income family and our kids need to go to school at five and they're going to public school and we're in a great school district and we have a great rapport with the teachers and everything is great on paper. What are some tools that parents can use in terms of implementing the most successful strategies? Like what, if you were able to get inside of that little kid, what would you say to that parent? I, mommy and daddy, I need this from you to help me be successful. From my standpoint, it's so individualized. Um, It's so hard for me to give a blanket. But I mean, movement is Mm -hmm. key for all humans. Kids need two hours or more of exercise per day. And a lot of times they are not getting what they need during the school day. So they need that support after or before, Okay, which is a big job for the parents. Yeah, it really is. And school takes up so much of their time. Some teachers are awesome. They fold it in like they do jumping math and they do, Mm -hmm. you know, some classrooms really have it where they're doing a lot of multisensory learning and the kids are moving throughout the day. Hopefully most, hopefully a lot of classrooms. I don't know. Since my kids aren't in school and I haven't, I have never worked in a school. That is just not an area that I'm super strong in. 
But I see the most success with the parents who have good people skills, really, you know, parents just who are involved, who know how to talk to their kids, who know how to talk to the teachers, who know how to be aware of what's going on. I heard something recently that I like (laughs) that said, like, all a child needs to be successful is one adult in their life that loves them unconditionally. I just thought that was a breath of fresh air, you know, because we can just get so caught up in the milestones and the landmarks and all these things that like, you know, when it comes down to it, your connection with your child is the most important thing. And if we're letting our anxiety about their performance or their mental health or whatever, if we're letting that get in the way of our relationship, then that's an issue for us and for them. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I was reading on your website, so we should also mention Elizabeth has founded Bud to Bloom, and you can find this at b2bparentcoaching.com. Your four major tips I noticed were movement, time in nature, nutrition, and slowness. Obviously, we all know what we should be doing for nutrition unless you have some extra tips. Um, we know our kids need to be outside. We know our kids need movement. Can you talk a little bit about the slowness aspect of it? Because I have found that to be something that is hugely beneficial at our house. Oh, okay. First, can you tell me what you've done and how it's been beneficial for you? So we, I was just telling Jenna this before we started the call, we signed the kids up for swim lessons, which resulted in us having to bust our asses to get out of the house in the morning. And it was ruining our entire day. And I understand that that is a luxury for us, that we are able to provide a slow morning. But my kids enjoy an hour-long mealtime, as Jenna knows. And everything about them is just kind of slow in nature. And everything about me is fast-paced and anxious in nature. So... I realized that the swim lessons and hurrying to get out the door in the morning was resulting in a really hard morning. And so we pulled them out this week and everybody's back to happy and normal. That was just an example from last week. And I notice anytime we start rushing through life, behavioral upticks kind of pick up. I just was wondering if you, what your thoughts on the slowness aspect of your kind of four pronged thing was. Yeah, I'm laughing to myself because we've had the most hectic month ever. And like, I'm not practicing any of this right now, but yeah, it's really hard. It's really countercultural to slow down, but it's so important for kids. Studies are showing that kids don't have enough unstructured time. They don't have time to just be creative. They don't have time to come up with their own ideas. Uh, They're being handed activities a lot and they're being handed like organized activities. Even socially, they don't get a lot of opportunity to like play in a way that's unstructured and I want to say unmonitored, but But not parent led alone. Yeah. Not, not adult led. Like we consider like putting them on a baseball team or swim lessons as socialization. And it is, it is. And there's goodness to that, but it's different than running around their neighborhood with their friends. Like what our parents Mm -hmm. did and like probably what we did. Those opportunities just seem to be getting less and less from my standpoint. And I agree. That's a detriment to our kids because it's robbing them of the opportunity to build that confidence, build that resilience, come up with their own ideas, figure out who they are. Kids do get in more trouble with less structure, but they need to. I mean, (laughs) you kind of have to test the boundaries Mm -hmm. to find them. So, you know, in my house, like slow, slowness is kind of about like my tolerance level. Like, can I handle us having an unstructured day 
and them doing things that drive me crazy, you know, I have to try to live slow enough that I can give them those opportunities because that's what they need. But I, I work a lot with my own tolerance level (laughs) with my parenting and the amount of screen time that we use. And, you know, because I don't want it to get in the way of my relationship with them. You know, I don't want the ideal that I have that they can be their own little people get in the way of me treating them the way that I want to treat them or, you know, me just losing it. I will say we are very slow in our house, Mm -hmm. but my kids have noticed that not everyone is like that. And so they struggle because they're like, there's no one to play with because it's like, oh, well, so-and-so is at camp. So-and-so is at baseball. And it's like, my kids love being at home and playing, but they're always like, I want people to come over and it's hard. And a lot of times I do find also parents feel like there has to be some kind of educational value to our play dates. And I'm like, no, just come over and the kids can run around and go play in the creek. It was kind of eye-opening to me. I was like, I thought that was like everyone's jam. And people are like, oh no, like we need to do this and this and we need to end at this time because we have to be here next. And then we have swim. And I'm just like, my kids play outside 90% of the day. They come in for food when they're hungry and then they go back outside. Chances of me knowing where they are are slim. But it it was a learning curve, especially for my husband because he was like, well, what if they, and I was like, what? What if they fall off the playset? Well, they would have done that if we were there. So it's been a big learning curve for him. But like yes. my kids, I will say they have thrived, especially my youngest, because she was two when the pandemic started and she was just in the car being shuffled around. Her language has exploded. She was talking like one word sentences. She is thriving and it has been just so cool to see. That is so cool. Yeah. yeah. When I can find like a mom friend who I feel like, comfortable letting our kids kind of hash it out and like problem yes. solve and you know that's like gold <laughs> like yeah, to find yeah. someone where your families can just chill and you know that your relationship is secure enough to deal with what's going to come I mm-hmm. thankfully I found a neighbor who has four kids and they're very they live at a slower pace than us um and they're just wonderful but the first time I went over they have a trampoline in the backyard and there were five boys on the trampoline wrestling. <laughs> And she was like, are you okay with this? And I was like, oh, yeah. Like, if he breaks his arm, it will heal and I'll be okay. Like, I want him to have these experiences. This is important mm-hmm. to me. That's great. That's really yeah. great. So, are you considered, are your services considered private or through the county? I'm assuming private. Yes. So, my bud to bloom is private. And then I also work through a clinic, which is a private clinic as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, was there a reason you went that route versus county services? Yeah. Um, I started out working for early childhood intervention. I was only there three months because we ended up moving. That that was a great experience. Um, but for my business, I really just wanted to provide a service for the parents. Um, insurance doesn't really reimburse for parent education. And it's my favorite thing and the most important thing that I do. Um, and a lot of people, I don't know what y'all's experience was with occupational therapy. But I mean, if you work in a traditional kind of clinic, you don't have time um, and you don't get paid to talk to parents. But it's like the single most important factor for that child to succeed. So I just see a real disconnect in the traditional way that services are being delivered. 
And I just see how much this knowledge has helped me in my parenting. When I look at my kids and they're starting to become dysregulated, I have a toolbox to use. And even though my kids are neurotypical, that's huge. I mean, these strategies and this lens that we view the body through, it's beneficial, I think, for all parents to understand. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to bring that to the light (laughs) Um, for parents to, to be able to get their hands on that information. I love. I that. think that's a really good point. When we did private OT, our last 10 to 15 minutes was we would come in and she would show us everything she worked on with Zach and what muscle group she was working on and how she felt that it would click through to him and what we could do at home. And she would say, you know, like get some pillows on the floor, let them jump off the butt, let them, this is going to sound like something you don't want to do. And so her educating me gave us stuff to work on throughout the week. And I don't think had it been a private, we've never experienced OT in a public um, domain, but in the private setting, she was very, very diligent about making sure we were involved in practicing at home. Yeah, I'll agree. We only did speech, but we did private and county. And my son is very intelligent. And so With speech, he was almost outsmarting all the games she would bring. So he wasn't getting anything from it. And then he was just acting silly or he would pretend like he didn't know and then make her still do the lesson. But he knew really how to say those words. And so then we did private. And she was like, my son's name is Ezra. She was like, Ezra, I'm not putting up with your games. You're going to do this right. And then she told me what to do at home. And it not only helped in terms of speech, but behavior as well. Because that was the first time he actually had to sit there and listen and have consequences. And she was a godsend. I was also super pregnant and then just had a newborn during all of this. So she was wonderful. But he still plays tricks on you, I feel like. That's just how his brain Mm – his brain is quicker than whatever you're going to throw at him. And so she recognized that. And you still get to use those tools. I I hear you say it to him all the time. (laughs) Yep, exactly. So I know we've been using the word OT a lot. So what kind of goes under, like broadly, I know there's a lot, but broadly, what kind of goes under that umbrella versus speech and PT? It's really the lens that we look at things. So we look at occupations. An occupation, that word is really confusing. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean a job. An occupation means anything that brings meaning to that person's life. Typically, we, we look at activities of daily living, which are like, dressing, bathing, grooming, eating, sleeping. Those are all things that are really meaningful to us. And we need Mm -hmm. those things to get on with our life. A lot of those align with using our hands. So a lot of times people see OTs as upper body and PTs as lower body. That's not necessarily true. It does kind of get divided like that. But a lot of the stuff that we do involves hands, fine motor, because you you use your hands to do all those necessary daily activities. With children, the primary occupation is play and then learning and academics. But play really is the most important occupation of childhood. That makes a lot of sense. So do you work with a specific age group? Typically, I see kids from one to, I think I have an 11-year-old. When they get older, we don't see them as much. And it, it just becomes a lot harder. Because you're just working on a lot more years of ingrained patterns. The earlier, the better. You know, if you get a, a one-year-old who's a picky eater, then you can make so much progress. So much. Yeah. But if you get an 11-year-old, you can still make progress. There's things you can do, but it's harder. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so to what Elizabeth had just said, this is my quick plug for PT. I was doing speech therapy and physical therapy because my son had two broken legs when he was young, which made his speech regress. And what you said in terms of you think of PT as lower body, he had two broken legs, so we're going to fix the two broken legs. What we never addressed was the fine motor things and the core instability. And so I feel that had we gotten into an OT space earlier, we didn't even discover OT until he was five and a half, maybe. And I always assumed it was acute, like, does he need to learn how to use a fax machine? Like, what is (laughs) occupational therapy? And it wasn't until we saw a new private clinician that said, can he put his pants on by himself? And I was like, absolutely not. And she was like, this is an OT situation. Can he put his own socks on? Absolutely not. Can he put his own shoes on? Absolutely not. All these things that were gravely impacting his day-to-day life, but because he had broken legs, I thought, well, that's physical therapy when you break your legs Mm -hmm. and you don't think about the entire body and Mm -hmm. the OT. And then he also had some sensory stuff with eating. And Mm -hmm. I never addressed that until he was five and a half because I was so busy. He was in speech like three or Mm -hmm. three times a week. He was in PT two times a week. And so I think that educating all parents on occupational therapy as kind of a nice blend of all the things. We even, our occupational therapist even moved some of his speech issues because it's a, his tongue strength wasn't great. Mm-hmm. She would integrate that in with the OT. Everybody knows about speech therapy. Mm-hmm. A lot of people know about physical therapy. Not a lot of us, even those of us that think they know everything like me, don't know what <laughs> occupational therapy is. And it is such a blessing when you find it because things turn yeah. around so fast. Yeah. Yeah. My aunt who's in the school system recommended OT for my son when I reached out to her because we were struggling with school and I was kind of taken aback and I'm like, but he's fine. He's very independent. And she was like, it's a little more than that. And I just never really took the whole school setting into OT and the fact that they could help with children who are struggling with ADHD. And I was just very surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OT is very holistic in its approach um, because of our focus, because we focus on those fundamental things to life. Right. So we're able to be very holistic. It's kind and, of a lot. I mean, we kind of focus on a lot, <laughs> yeah. but it is, it is a good thing for parents to know about. I think some people don't know about it and other people have seen it in other settings because with geriatrics, mm-hmm. we look pretty different yes, um, or yes. with rehab, like mm-hmm. If someone has a hip replacement, they'll see an OT for mm-hmm. probably a short term, get some equipment, get their precautions and move on. So, but with pediatrics, we really try to, we really follow the families closely and we can stick with kids for years to help get them through. That's amazing. So do you have a large percentage of parents that come to you and say, we're not ready to go down the medication route? And are you able to help them? Because Personally, that's where we are at. I'd prefer to stay away from medication. We have a long list of not the best genetics in our family. And so anything from a holistic point of view that can be done, we definitely seek out. Yeah, definitely. I have a lot. I have a a lot of kids whose parents don't want to medicate and who are looking for other, other ways to calm. And there's a, there's a lot of tools. Um, it's all about finding the right fit for that child. 
First, let me talk about sensory, and then I'll tell you about some of the like big tools that we use. Yeah, that are I'm very interested in sensory because I was literally asking Jenna before we got on because she was like, you use sensory. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, those days when you're stressed out and you call me like, I just need to get home and work out and I'll be okay. She's like, that's an example of sensory. And I was like, okay, well, I need to know more about sensory. Yes, <laughs> so tell me what y'all know, because y'all have had some good I experience. know nothing. Jenna knows. You were talking I, about your kid jumping off the couch on the pillows, right? Sure. Okay, yes. And I do know that Zach had, my oldest had a lot of trouble with food um different textures were like he would literally put something in his mouth and vomit and so that's the only experience and he was weird about touch like he wouldn't touch sand for a long time he would not touch the rice and like the sensory bin at school but like we just were always like oh that's he's kind of an oddball like that's just one of his things and we never put it all together in like a whole picture until we started ot and we're like oh these are all interconnected okay (laughs) yeah yeah i don't know I know the word a lot more than anything. I know my son struggled with sensory overload when he was really little, as well as loud noises were just way too loud and scary to him. still have trouble with loud noises. Yeah. And he still struggles with texture in terms of touch, not like taste or like he's perfectly fine with foods, but he's still like kinetic sand. He doesn't like to touch that. He's not my get messy type kid. As well as, I don't know if this completely relates, but sensory in terms of when he's learning something new, he can't sit there and listen. He has to sit there and be moving part of his body. Yeah. And same with eating meals. It frustrates the heck out of my husband, but we try to avoid restaurants because him sitting down for a meal is like torture to him. So we do allow him to, we have like bar stools kind of like, basically he's like a moving little eating machine and he goes from like bar stool to bar stool. And then works his way back. <laughs> and so he just can't so sit still. So at the table. <laughs> yeah. So he's <laughs> at the table. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. That's a good yeah. idea. Yeah. So sensory is super complicated, but I'm going to try to make it as clear as I can. There's eight sensory systems. So you learn about five. Sight, smell, touch, taste, mm-hmm. um, hearing. Um, but there's other ones that that we don't learn about or talk about, um, proprioception. Hopefully y'all learn that with your last, your experiences. That's your understanding of where the body is in space. It's the most confusing one to really understand, but I like to think about it. Like if I close my eyes and hold my arms out, like I know my nose is here, my forehead's here, my other arms over here, that's proprioception. Just understanding where your body is kind of how it moves, how it works. I don't have the best like receptor, <laughs> so I'll run into doorways, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. I'll bump into things. Like if you, if you don't have great body awareness, you're going to mm-hmm. use cues outside of your body to tell you where you are. And we see that a lot with kids. Athletes have great proprioception. They understand their body, where it is and how it moves. And then interoception is a, another sense that's kind of the newest to be studied. And that's understanding like what is going on inside your body? Am I hungry to have to go to the bathroom? So to be able to process all of those different areas well, you have to have self-regulation. So your body has to be in a state where your systems are balanced enough that you 
you don't have to think about them, you know? Oh, and I didn't mention vestibular. Vestibular is another, another one of the eight. And that's what position am I in? Am I upside down? Am I standing upright? Am I spinning around in circles? That's vestibular. So the three that we kind of look at that are kind of the pillars of sensory integration are the proprioceptive, vestibular, and then tactile, which is touch. So when you see deficits in those areas, everything else that builds on top of it is going to be tough. So if you can't process touch, if you can't process movement, if you're not um, understanding how your body works or how it moves, your ability to pay attention, your ability to engage socially, your ability to regulate your emotions is going to be way harder. Your body's working way harder to stay at its baseline of regulation. That makes so much sense. That's why um, when you think about regulation, I like to think about like I'm doing it, like I'm playing with my fingers, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're probably all doing things to keep our body at a just right level of alertness so you can pay attention and listen and respond. We all have things. My husband shakes his leg mm-hmm. <laughs> all the time. That's regulation. So we've learned really subtle, appropriate ways to regulate our bodies. And some of these kids haven't, right? So we're old. We've been working at this for, I mean, I've been working, I'm 22 years old. So <laughs> but like, little kids haven't had a lot of time in their little bodies to figure out the regulation. And you're right. And I never really, when Zachary needed speech therapy after breaking his legs, I was like, why would that even matter together? And they said, well, when he broke his legs two times back to back, he can't develop speech on top of relearning to walk because your brain needs to like you it, little little kid brains are like a pie. Yeah, and they only have so many. Yeah, they only yeah. have so much space to give out. And I was like, Oh, so now we're in speech therapy, it took him a year to relearn how to walk upstairs. And it was like, why can't he just see a step and go up the step and go up the step? And I'd never heard some of those words you just used. And that makes so yeah. much sense. Like he just couldn't figure out like my knee needs to lift to go. And I would just sit there and watch him week after week. Like it's stairs. There's seven mm-hmm. stairs. Walk up them. <laughs> and It was wild to me. So hearing you explain it like that is helpful even to me looking back on my experiences. Yeah, we look at it like a pyramid. So you've got to get the foundation in place. And that foundation is the vestibular, the proprioceptive, and the tactile. That's your foundation. The vestibular goes with postural um, control. Like if you can't hold your body upright, your brain's going to prioritize that. So kids who are super wiggly in school, they might not be learning because they're focusing on holding their bodies upright. A lot of them need a lot more core strengthening to get to the point where they can sit and attend or adaptations. Like your bar stool thing is awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, like Mm -hmm. he needs to keep moving to stay at the table and tolerate eating. Eating is the most sensory rich thing that kids do. Um, So kids that have difficulties processing input oftentimes have difficulty with food. And it just totally makes sense. It takes everything you've got to get that food in your mouth and chewed and swallowed. Um, It's a high demand activity. And so does the, you know, like some people will say big kids have such, my kid has such big feelings. I just need them to calm down. Are those big feelings, big emotions, outbursts, tempers, is all of that kind of under this as well? Like their foundation just isn't quite where it needs to be. Yeah, that's how I see it. And you got to get that foundation, that processing 
to a point where that, you know, functional um, before you can really work on that emotional regulation. There are things you can do, programs you can use, and there's things you can do to label emotions and to discuss them. But, well, okay, so with, with all those different systems, we look at some children are over-responsive and some are under-responsive. Okay. So I like to look at it like different cups. Like everyone has different size cups for different types of input. So like uh, you mentioned your son had trouble with textures. Both of your sons had trouble yeah. with textures. They have a very small tactile cup, right? <laughs> but maybe the vestibular cup is huge. Maybe they need tons of movement. Maybe it has a hole in it and it can't be filled up enough, right? Um, <laughs> and then maybe the proprioceptive cup is big and the auditory cup is tiny and sound set them off. So that's kind of what we look at. Are they over-responsive? Are they under-responsive in all these different areas? And then we can put together a plan to help them get regulated. Oh, that's that's so why interesting. You need professional. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Google to work your way through this stuff because it mm-hmm. just takes a lot of knowledge and understanding that takes years to develop. Yeah. And I appreciate you explaining it like that because there's so many times where I've gone to professionals and I've said, and a lot of times it's doctors. And I've said, I feel like we're struggling in X, Y, Z. And they're always like, oh, they'll grow out of it. Even with speech, I had to fight tooth and nail to get my kid into speech. And I was like, something is not right. And they kept saying, it's just an age thing. And I was like, but it's not. And when we finally found the right speech therapist for us, they were like, this is not an age thing. And they were able to see that there was a lot more to the picture than him just not pronouncing words correctly. So I appreciate you explaining it like that because that makes so that much sense. analogy is super rad. I'm going to yeah. use that all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it applies yes. to us too. You know, I talked about how I work within my own tolerance level to decide how I parent. But there's ways I can increase my tolerance or decrease. I mean, like I'm human. So we all have our days where we're like to hear, but yeah. like movement and exercise, like what you're saying, I got to go exercise. I'm stressed out. I'm anxious. I need to go for that walk. Like we have our ways Mm -hmm. of, of regulating, but kids don't, and kids don't have control over their worlds. So we make all these choices for ourselves. I want this for lunch, not that. I want that cup. I want this plate. I mean, that and kids don't get any of those choices. So they, their thresholds are already high if they're not Mm -hmm. processing well, and it just goes higher, higher, higher until they explode. That's such an interesting way to put it too, because they don't like my kid can't just say, I'm feeling really frazzled. I need to exercise. Like he can't just be like, I'm going to go for a two mile walk. I'll see you in a few minutes. Like my four-year-old is instead probably going to like headbutt someone because he really, my four-year-old is very physical Uh and we're constantly like, why are you like pounding on people and headbutting things. And he also, which I've never heard this vestibular part before, but he likes to be upside down a lot. And we've always been like, yeah, we've always thought it was so we joke about that. Cause he goes upside down on beanbag chairs all the time and just like wiggles his butt. And we just call it Mikey's twerking time. And so, but he loves being upside down and I've never seen my seven-year-old upside down. And so yeah. the vestibular part makes a lot of sense. Like he really enjoys the idea of being inverted versus like a normal, like uh, a the same, like she'll sit in a laundry basket and fall backwards over and over or she, she does that like downward facing dog pose, like all the time, all day. Stuff like that. And like, 
I mean, just let them like. But they don't get to look at me and say, mom, I need to be upside down for a few minutes back (laughs) off. Like where I Mm -hmm. could say like, Jenna has said this before where she can say to her family, I need a timeout. So I'm going to go for a drive in my car. Our four-year-olds don't get to say that. So instead they're going to hang out upside down for a while. (laughs) Yeah. And the headbutting thing, if you think about, so proprioception is hard to understand, but big impact is what gives us a lot of proprioceptive input. It's pushing on the joints, pushing the joints together. So running is good. And if you think about like after you run, you feel the joints in your legs for a little while after. And that's calming signals to our nervous system that calms that fight or flight response that's already in these kids. So they're going to seek out more proprioceptive input. They're going to push chairs across the room. They're going to push on the wall. They're going to carry things that are, look too heavy for them. That's yes. the way that they're trying to calm their body. loves it. Mm-hmm. It's not like the headbutting, the amount of proprioceptive input that he's getting from that. So it's probably like a calming kind of yeah. mechanism that he's using that's not appropriate. So what you want to do is give him pressure on his shoulders, give him other outlets to get that same kind of input that he's looking okay. for. That that's a very helpful tip. I wasn't even here. I wasn't even here for tips, but that will be very helpful because he does. Yeah. And it's, it's got, it's, it has no malice to it because he generally, my husband is a gigantic individual and my four-year-old will headbutt him in the sternum. And that sternum is basically a steel plate. And we're, we're unclear why would that would seem like a fun idea, but he does it multiple times a day. And so that makes sense that there is some sensory overload that that is alleviating for him. Yeah, try like deep pressure massage on his head, okay. compressions on it, push his shoulders down, okay. have him carry something heavy, see okay. if there's a, an alternative to like a possible <laughs> neck injury, right? <laughs> right. Even like, um, crash pad jumping off the couch on the pillow mm-hmm. that kind of that's proprioceptive super yeah calm. we never had to have anything to jump onto until we had the second kid and now our whole house is random beanbag chairs that he stacks up and jumps on they really find ways to get what they need especially yeah. more neurotypical kids are gonna really mm-hmm. find ways to get what they need and if you just okay. like that's my favorite part of my job like I have a kid that's that's like a little bit together and I can just sit back and watch them. Then I can be like, okay, we need to do this, this, and this. And they're the little tweaks on things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Now I wish I lived in Texas so you could (laughs) be our OT. Um, So my son has struggled with, he's recognizing now that he is a little different this and, is a good one. I'm very interested in this. Yeah. yeah. And he's he's very into how the body works, how everything works. And so he's noticed that he can't sit still as well as he told me, my brain is just always going. And when you're talking to me, he's like, I can't turn. He always calls it his story, like my story off to always listen. And so we have a lot of strategies, but he was like, why can't I just stop the story? And why can't I sit still, especially now that we have a second child and she can sit still for hours. She doesn't have to move during meals. Do you have any tips on how I can talk to him? First of all, in a positive way, because I want him to see you're different, but it's a positive thing as well as a way that he would understand. Yeah. I love that. He says my I love yeah. that too. I've never heard that. And I want to hear uh-huh. his story. I bet it's so good. Oh, it's, it's so cute. Sometimes he'll even say like, I'm playing a game in my head and I'm like, 
I hope you're winning. Like, <laughs> I, But I think that's an important point is like also you, Elizabeth, all of our children are coming to age where they're starting to recognize differences from their peers, whether that's siblings or other kids. And that was a question. I think we had a write-in question about that. My yeah. child is noticing that they're different from other kids on the playground. Is there a good way to explain to them that your brain works a little bit differently. Like I say, mommy takes mental health medicine because mommy's brain doesn't make a certain chemical. So I have to take the medicine for it. Is there an open, easy, clear, short way to explain to your kids? Like you're not wrong, different. You just are different in a way that makes you noticeable to others. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know if I have a clear, concise way. I, I would individualize it. That's going to be my answer for a lot. But the fact that he's already articulating that so well is mm-hmm. so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I did. I talked to a OT friend last night who has ADHD, and we talked about some of these questions. And I loved um, her response. She said she describes the ADD brain like a like a bunch of roads. So she said, it's like I have like 10 roads going at the same time. And when things are going well, like they're all moving and like it's all like flowing and going and I can do like a lot. But when things start to become more dysregulated and get off, it's like there become crashes on the road. And like there'll be a crash here and then a crash here. And then it just gets harder and harder to like get it back going and, and get it figured out. And so I think the capability of someone's mind to work that fast is so amazing. And I think there's ways to celebrate that probably like sometimes they have a high endurance and a high energy level and, you know, so like finding those strengths and just like capitalizing on that. Well, it's just like, all of us, right? Like we all just, we all have strengths and we all have things that we struggle with. And, and it does seem like society and the world that they're going to grow up in is going to be more inclusive and more accepting of differences and more educated. Probably the amount of information is massive. So, so I think there's a lot of hope, but I think with sensory stuff, if they can explain, um, I had one little girl in a session, tell me something. It was, it was so articulate. I think she said, like, I don't like to touch things. Like, I think she said, my body feels things really, really strong. And I don't like to touch things. And I was just like, wow, like if we can teach them to articulate, like my body needs to move to pay attention, you know, they can advocate for themselves in some settings. Um, and that. that's such a gift because there's so many areas that even in myself, I don't have a grip on it <laughs> because yeah. trying to like get through and be a part of and conform. Um, but I think there's a lot of room to teach kids to advocate. My body needs this and this is how I function. And I think society is moving in a direction that's more accepting of that. I love that. And so to kind of go with that, one of our friends slash listeners has a son who is four. So he's on the younger end and she has a hard time connecting with him in terms of direction. So getting him to stop doing what he's doing so that he can actually acknowledge that the mom is talking to him and listen so that he can absorb the info, whether it's direction or requesting, or even just asking a simple question. Do you have any tips for how she could go about connecting with her son? Yes. 
We talked about auditory input just a little bit, but there's a lot of components to hearing and processing what you're hearing. There's hearing and there's auditory processing, processing that information. Yeah. And there's different profiles that different kids have. Um, so something that I'm always assessing is like, how many steps can they handle? You know, can they handle yeah. one step? Can they handle three? Typically my kids can't handle three steps. Usually one is good. Yeah. <laughs> and then I try to pair it with multisensory if they're not responding. So touch and um, changing your intonation of your voice, whisper or louder. I don't like louder that much. Whisper or like I'll like seeing things to my kids. It's really annoying, but it gets their attention <laughs> and it kind of, you know, breaks the mood if it's tense. Um, a four-year-old, I would use pretend play as much as possible. They live in a little magical world that matches their cognitive abilities and it's going to engage them in a way that, you know, go put your shoes on, go, you know, commands is not going to engage. Mm-hmm. That can be hard to be that kind of creative in your daily life. But if you can learn, then it kind of becomes easy. They need the same. They want the same thing. Once you get Mm -hmm. something, you can keep using it at those ages. That makes sense. My son likes to communicate in Godzilla voices. (laughs) And when I do it with him, he listens so much better. We were actually doing it before this, trying to clean up stairs. And he had me talk like Godzilla the whole time. And he listened to every instruction I gave him. And I was kind of like, oh, like... (laughs) Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. It was like, got his attention. That is actually really smart. And I have, I recently read an article about that whispering trick because it like sucks them yeah. into the, it, like what you're saying must be interesting because when parents are whispering, ooh, so let me like zone in mm-hmm. on that. And it'll probably work for two weeks. Then you have to find the next thing, which yeah, all of us like know is. Else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Changing your posture also can have a big impact. Sometimes when my kids are like laying down tantruming, I'll just lay down next to them, like get below them, like get, if you kind of mirror what they're doing, they're going to be like, what? Like it's going (laughs) to throw them and they're going to be interested in what you're doing as opposed to your typical parent posture being over them. When you change that dynamic, it's really engaging for them. And confusing. It's oh, really interesting because we've <laughs> yeah, all confusing. heard of the get on their level, but what if we get beneath them? That will really yeah. throw them for a loop. That's a really good one. Yeah, yeah, that can get their attention. And another thing you can do is like a five minute kind of brain break. This is easier for a therapy relationship than a parent relationship. <laughs> you know, say you want to get them into the bath and they don't want to. You can be like, we're going to do jumping jacks. Hurry. We're going to do jumping jacks. We're going to march. We're going to run. Okay. We're going to hop to the bathtub. That would work with a four-year-old, not a seven-year-old. Incorporating that kind of movement and then adding some commands that are fun mixed in with the commands that are necessary. Oh, I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. One more question that I thought of. If a parent wants to go down the OT route, how do they find somebody in their area? Because- I don't know if we mentioned this, but Elizabeth is in Texas. So she services families in Texas, obviously. And Janelle's in Chicago and I'm in Virginia. So how do you find somebody who is reputable as well as hopefully going to be a decent fit? Yeah, that is a 
great question because uh, sensory integration is a specialty of pediatric OT, which pediatric OT is already a specialty. So I think all pediatric OTs have a baseline of sensory, um, but I don't think all pediatric OTs understand how to help kids get regulated because I sure didn't in my first several years of practice. I mentioned earlier and I never came back to it, like some of the like big guns for regulation. So there's some programs that are utilized by sensory OTs. And, and as I kind of look at clinics and stuff, I look for these programs. Um, we don't really have certifications and there's not a great way. You would just have to ask questions and go with your gut. Yeah. One of those programs is the interactive metronome. And that's a program that I use a lot that helps a lot with ADHD um, that parents will use as a resource before medication. Another program is integrated listening system. So if they're ILS certified, that's a music program that's used. And that could be a good indication that they have a good sensory background. And another program is the safe and sound protocol, which is through that same. Actually, it's not integrated listening systems anymore. It's just, it's Unite. But I think it's both Unite integrated listening systems. But these words are all helpful if we're Google searching. We're, we want to start our Google search with a pediatric OT and then expand into looking for these key words of sensory exactly. and yeah, things. So that's helpful clinician, or you can use those websites, like on the metronome website or the Mm -hmm. um, Unite website, you can look for clinicians who are certified in those things. And that's going to be an indication that they're working on specializing in some of those areas. Perfect. That's very helpful. The last thing that I wanted to touch on was what I had read in my um, book was just a brief outlook on the top three things for, I don't even have to reread it because this is how I parent at my house, but it said it's very beneficial to kids with ADHD is the three basic rules when responding to your child's behavior. And you can tell me if you agree or disagree, but if you want to see a behavior continue, praise it. If you do not like a behavior, but it is not dangerous or intolerable, ignore it. And if you have to stop a behavior that is dangerous or intolerable, like when your child hits a sibling just to hurt her, get your attention, it says punish it. But I would change that to intervene, obviously, because I don't think that punishing kids that are having these acting out moments is necessarily where we go. But from an ADHD book standpoint, and that is kind of how I parent my children, even though I don't believe that we have an ADHD situation, but we do get calm. I've heard multiple comments on my children being feral. (laughs) And I'm sure Jen has heard this too, because we are let our kids be outside and do, we try to keep our tolerance really high for things that are not dangerous. It can be really hard. And for Jenna's husband and my husband, it's very uncomfortable. But I will let everyone know that all of my children's broken bones have happened with a parent within 1.5 feet. (laughs) So letting your parent, your kid play outside is and letting them wrestle and letting them roughhouse in these things are not detrimental. They are stimulating in a way that I do think is beneficial. And I think that if we, no parent is perfect at this, is it? Anybody who can say like, you know what, they were doing something that was annoying me and I let it go and I never care is not telling the truth. But if we can make that kind of just like a benchmark, I think that's a nice way to look at it. Yeah, I agree. I think those things that you mentioned, roughhousing, being outside, taking risks, it's necessary to development. Um, It's necessary to produce healthy grownups for children to be allowed those opportunities. I I don't ever want to advocate for children getting hurt, but when they do, they learn a lot about their bodies. Sure (laughs) do. 
and kids are going to heal really fast. So um, do. I kind of feel like if we can protect the soft tissue, the ligament, <laughs> the tendons. Hel- they, my kids have to wear a helmet whenever they want to fight with sticks. Like, let's protect your brain and everything yep. else is yeah. uh, maybe some eye. We wear sunglasses <laughs> once in a while. Eyes and brains. Other than that, everything else is pretty fixable. Mm-hmm. We want to produce resilient, capable, strong adults. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. And yes. safetyism is not the way to do that. And, and research has shown that. So, so that's an area that's, that's hard, but, but we need more education. We need more voices in that. I think another thing is, as you're watching your kids get the input that they need, a good question is like, is that inappropriate or is, does that bother me for some yes. reason? You know, like, is that, are they doing something wrong or am I just like uptight about that mm-hmm. or, you know a lot of times there's a lot of stuff we can let go I, I'm I'm a believer in boundaries I think boundaries are better than no boundaries but uh, you know there's a lot of things that bother me just because I don't know why <laughs> I'm yeah, because our anxiety I had a therapist <laughs> once tell me like your you thinking a kid fidgeting in their chair at a restaurant is bothersome to you because your parents didn't allow it. And for some reason, your brain thinks you shouldn't allow it in your children, even if they need that stimulus to keep them comfortable. Mm-hmm. It bothers you. It bothers no one else in the restaurant, but you will get in a fight with mm-hmm. them to make them stop. Yep. Yes, exactly. So I think that's a good thing to be thinking about as a parent. Is this, is this bothering me because it's wrong? Or does it bother me because of something in me. But with that, I think there's a fine line between teaching respect and letting your kids go and letting your kids do things. And Mm -hmm. I think that's an important boundary to think about because we want, we want to teach them to respect others and and to respect themselves. And it just gets real complicated, you know, (laughs) it really does. But I think what Elizabeth alluded to a little bit ago also is children on any part of the childhood spectrum, specifically ADHD or autism spectrum disorders, really respond well to boundaries. And I think we should differentiate setting boundaries because that makes them feel safe and whole and put, like you said, they don't really understand that, like how close your eyes and touch your finger to your nose. They don't even understand their body spatially. So they need the boundaries for safety, but like my kids know that your boundary is the stop sign at the end of the street. And if you go past that, you will lose a privilege. Or we yesterday had to take a swim lesson away because we were just having a really hard time not fighting with each other and name calling and arguing. And I think somebody might have spit at someone like it was a lot. And so I said, I warned you three times I would take away your swim lesson. And now and like you said, there is safety monitoring, and there is boundaries. Children do respond well to boundaries, but all studies do show that they need a little bit less safety regulation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. That's a really good point. I definitely We're agree. pro-boundary and- here. Yeah. <laughs> I am too. There's a lot of voices. I feel like there's some parenting movements and um, even with um, some of the Montessori approach, it's very child-led. There's, there's a lot of good stuff about learning to listen to your child's cues, learning to follow their lead, respecting them as people, even, um, like some nutritionists are saying, give kids sweets with their meal. We don't want to put sugar up on a pedestal. There's a lot of, and some people say, don't limit screen time, let them regulate themselves. I, I hear a lot of those voices and, 
I think that's really interesting. Um, I think there's value to that. I think we need to respect our kids. I think we need to allow them room to come up with their own regulation, but only at the appropriate time. I mean, I don't regulate my own screen time well. I, I, if I have a bag of cookies in front of me, I'm going to eat the whole thing. Like, and I don't want to put more on my kids than they can handle. So parents Mm -hmm. are the ones that know their kids and what boundaries Mm -hmm. need to be set. And I think that's something, that's just something I've wrestled with as I've Mm -hmm. looked at that. I think it's really idealistic to think that kids have their own best interest at heart when the parents don't. Um, And I think that's a really good way to look at it too. I've never once in my life thought like, I will drink a whole pot of coffee if there's a whole pot of coffee, even though I will have a panic attack and maybe crash my car. Mm-hmm. But I expect my kid to be like, I'm only going to eat the the servings. I've said to my son before, like, you know, you're only allowed to eat 20 chips out of this bag. Why did you eat the whole bag? Like what? I will do that every night watching Netflix. And so I think it's really important that we are reflecting on ourselves as parents and realizing we don't even possess some of these abilities to regulate ourselves. So asking small little human beings that don't know the alphabet to regulate that I am putting, I have learned from this conversation that I'm putting a lot more pressure on my kids than I even have the ability to contain on myself. Like, I think, yes, it would be an ideal if a five-year-old could regulate their own screen time, their own intake, whatever. But like, it would be cool if I could do that too. (laughs) It'd be great if we all. (laughs) So let me ask you this. My son has huge behavior changes towards the negative when he watches any screen time. I will have to say that detox of taking away screens was difficult. However, he is completely fine without screens now. And he watches it maybe once a month at grandma and grandpa's house as like a treat. But I get a lot of criticism of why can't you just let him do a little bit each day? It would be so much easier for you because you could get more done. And am I crazy to think that he has these huge drastic behavior issues when he watches screens? I've gotten a lot of criticism like, well, we grew up with screens and we're fine. And that's part of the learning, they need to learn technology. But when I say drastic behavior changes, I mean like temper tantrums and hyperactivity. And then he doesn't sleep well. And it's even if it's like one show a day, like we cannot do it. I mean, that's consistent with clients that I've had and and parents stories that I've heard. You're not alone with that. Oh, good. (laughs) Um, Yes. And setting that boundary is, is huge. And I wish you could get nothing but applause for that because that's that's harder for you. Yeah, um, hard as hell. <laughs> yeah. I don't see any benefit in giving him that screen time now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Let's give him the chance to mature a little more. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. This doesn't right. mean forever. That's yeah. True. Sounds like where you're at right now. That sounds like, like totally appropriate. And I mean, like above and beyond for him. Yeah. There's a lot of voices. Like we, we've mentioned, like they'll grow out of it. Um, that's a big one. They'll grow out of it. They'll grow out of it. Um, or we did that as kids. A lot has changed and children are changing and circumstances are changing. Scream time has changed. You know, you put him in front of Mr. Rogers and it would probably be okay. Right. Yeah. But that's not what's on. I mean, you turn on your TV and it's like 500 options and it's high stimulation shows. So Mm -hmm. I think quality of screen time becomes a factor with screen time. Um, If they watch something in real time, that's like real life time. Like, do y'all know the movie Hoosiers? Mm -hmm. I've heard of it. Yeah. 
Hoosiers today after they went swimming. And I told my husband, like, I don't think that counts. Like, (laughs) it's like so slow. It's like real life. Like, it's not. I completely agree. I noticed that my, and so Jenna can't do any almost basically, right? You do none. Well, my that kids makes sense because he can do like an out school class and be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my kids can handle a real life. Like we try to watch um, the great British bake off as a family, yeah. or yeah. we watch not age appropriate, but we watched Wasted last night, which was like the food documentary with Anthony Bourdain and like maybe edit out the beginning and the end. But my kids yeah. function very well if it's something real time, real life learning with like a little bit of undertone of comedy. They don't get um, they're not watching it like this, like with their tongue <laughs> hanging out, where if I if they put on. Yeah. And they can get a li- they can get into octonauts a little bit, but sometimes that will send them up a, a notch. That's as high as we can go. They cannot watch like Sonic the Hedgehog or mm-hmm. any of these like fast paced bling, bling, bling. I, I call it like the casino effect. Like yeah. you get sucked into a slot machine. You can get sucked into these like fruit slice games and stuff where it's a lot different. If you like Jenna said, like you can do an out school class or your screen time can be real life versus some of these games and it doesn't produce the same brain stimulus in my opinion yeah exactly I watched a TED talk it's been a long time so I'm gonna totally misquote it but I don't even know if I can find it it was like six years ago when my son was little and I was learning about screen time you know trying to avoid it completely because that recommendation (laughs) that was the recommendation (laughs) at the time six years ago zero under two yeah exactly um (laughs) But I watched this TED talk that just kind of compared the the qualities of different screen time with some research actually about ADHD. And it showed that the like the more stimulation, the faster the pace, the more violence, the mm-hmm. more I think it's going to be more addictive and cause more difficulty with attention. I think quality, I think I look at TV as different than iPad. I look at video games as different than TV. I mean, you yeah. know, so, I, so that would be my argument with people saying we watched it and we were fine. Yeah. Like we had, I mean, like I didn't have cable growing up. I had like five channels and commercial breaks. There were commercial breaks. Mm -hmm. Now the options are just limitless. It's overwhelming. It it's a lot. Um, so it's different. So things have just changed and what you're doing is admirable. I think it's worth it. I don't think kids are going to be behind because they don't have technology. Look how it's going to change anyway. Like true. Yeah. Like I can't even, I can't even do Excel anymore. And I learned, I took a whole course on it in college and now it's all obsolete. So by the time our kids need technology, it's going to be probably like in their sunglasses and not on the phone anymore. (laughs) I know. I can't even fathom where it's going to go. But I mean, I think if they have good motor skills, if they have good regulation, if they have good social skills, if they have values, they're going to be able to figure out technology when they need to. That's true. And people keep saying like, so you can have a break. And I'm like, my kids go outside and I don't see them. So I really need a break. Like they're, they're self-sufficient and they look after each other. So yeah. And (laughs) this isn't to villainize screen time either. um, If your kid is completely neurotypical, has no adverse reaction to it. I also am in a few homeschool groups that um, are co-ops that are completely child-led and I have a hard time just sitting back and letting my, like, that's the rule of the group is the parents aren't supposed to lead the children at all and it is very hard. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's just ingrained in us is that we need to overanalyze things. But if your child is having no night, no sleep disturbances, no behavioral mm-hmm. disturbances, no adverse reaction to six hours a day of screen time, you're fine. Mm-hmm. My kids can do a little. Jenna's can't do any. It's yeah. knowing your child and what works and what doesn't for them. Yeah, that's true. Because yeah. my youngest can do – she's fine with screen time. But she falls under care the about camp it or of, ask for it or any no. of it. Yeah. But she falls under the camp of like, we kind of have to do it as a family. So no screens are on during the day. But when brother does an out school class, she gets an iPad and she's perfectly fine with it. And then she turns it off when it's over. She puts it away. There's no like temper tantrum. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, this is a completely different child. So that's a good point. Yeah. Like different stimulation different quality of TV as well as different child. Different maturity of brain. You might see something completely different in a year or two that he might be able to handle different things too that he couldn't before. It's different seasons of life for the parents, you know, turn that thing Mm -hmm. on if you're moving or if you're sick, you know, when stuff is going on, like, and if that keeps your child safe, like, Mm -hmm. like we have this magical tool that will mesmerize our kids and there are times need that we're such an isolated culture absolutely so so it can be used as a tool really effectively I love that yeah I like that um well this has been great I would love to pick your brain more about stress at some point later on if you're open to that because I was reading your blog about stress with COVID and managing stress with kids. If you're open to that, I think that would be a great conversation. Oh, that would be parents. a great future. Yeah. I would love that. Yeah. And if anybody wants to write in questions, I think Elizabeth would be open to coming on again, hopefully, unless we've offended her too greatly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> again, you can find um, Elizabeth at B2B Parenting. What's the last yeah. word? Parentcoaching.com. Parentcoaching.com. She's also on Facebook and Instagram. And then we'll link all of her stuff um, in the show notes. And then if y'all have any questions you want to send in, we can bring her back on. But I was going to say earlier, if you are listening from Minnesota, when we started noticing something was a little bit askew with Zach when he was 15 months old with his speech, um, and I already linked it in the show notes, we contacted helpmegrow.org. And they send a specialist to your house completely paid for that will evaluate all aspects of their development, motor, physical, speech, all of it. And so if you are listening from Minnesota or research on Google that there's got to be there's probably a program near you where someone will come out from the county for free and assess your child, they will either ease your mind or they will be able to direct you to where to get services and Like we said, early intervention is important. So saying they'll grow out of it. Yeah, that's true in some things, but also maybe they'll grow into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to add to that. There is help available. So if parents are struggling, you know, you don't want to do too much intervention or you want to see if they'll grow out of it. Um, Even if they will grow out of it, there's help in the meantime. Um, You can get some tools to get you through that phase. You don't have to suffer. They don't have to suffer. Um, So reach out to the professionals in your community to get some help. Yeah, That's don't great. suffer alone. None of us should be doing this alone. I wish we could all go back to caves and work together and do laundry together around a puddle. Because <laughs> it's hard together. alone. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, call your therapist. And take your meds. 